Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I want to first begin with a review of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. How many were here last Sunday? Okay, all right. Um, This is what you missed if you weren't. We talked about the benefits of being justified. See if some of you guys remember it. It means, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Good. (laughs) That's a long phrase to try to say together. But yes, it means that the way to remember it is this. To be just as if I'd never sinned. It's an amazing thing that God is able to pull off. It's an accounting uh, thing that He can do. He can call you righteous, even though, I mean, you and me both know, you ain't righteous. He can call you righteous. He can actually make you righteous because of Jesus. Make you just as if you'd never sinned. It's a swap. He, he switches out his perfect life for your less than perfect life. So let's just review real quick the benefits of being justified. Verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing we learned last week, we're no longer at war with a God who hates sin. He's always hated sin. He always will hate sin. But I'm no longer at war with Him because I'm just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, verse 2. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We saw we have 24-7, 365 days a year, we have access into the throne room of Almighty God. The Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, um, even in Jesus' time, they would take uh, the, the, the high priest once a year would get to go into this place, the Holy of Holies, and hope that he wouldn't die. Right? But now we get to enter into his presence. We get to enter into the place where only complete purity survives. And when we enter into his presence, we find him smiling, gracious toward us. Because we are just as if we'd never sinned. Then at the end of verse 2, it says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we will see God in all of his glory one day. Think about that again. He's holy. He's righteous. But I will get to see him face to face one day. His radiance will warm us, not burn us. He will melt our hearts, not our faces. Right? Because we are just as if we've never sinned. Now let me stop just for clarity's sake. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you can't claim this. If you have given your life to Him, He is able to make you just as if you'd never sinned. Okay? Verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. You could read shine in tribulations. We actually uh, do well in tribulations, surprisingly so. Uh, The word tribulation, there's philipsis. It means literally pressure. It was the kind of... of, um, torture they would use. They would put boards on criminals and then they would put stones on the boards and they would just literally crush the the breath, the life out of them. Maybe some of you under great pressure. Okay? This says, Paul says, and when you when you know about Paul, you read through his letters, you understand this guy was always under great pressure. 
And he truthfully says here, look, not only that, we shine in tribulations. We are able to withstand enormous pressure. Don't raise your hand, but does that describe you? Able to withstand enormous pressure that would crush other people. If you're a Christian, it's supposed to describe you. And you know what it is, the secret, how Paul could actually truly say that? How does he shine in the midst of tribulation? Because he knows that God loves him. Because he knows that the, the, the stone that's on the, the, uh, the board is not to punish him. It's not a torture for him. He knows that it's because the word says he is just as if he'd never sinned. So God doesn't have to punish him. He's not punishing, Paul would say. Our Lord is purifying. What he's allowing in our lives is not to ruin us, but to refine us. What Paul has discovered, and I hope you've discovered, is that in every hard, so difficult situation that you face, if you're a Christian, in all of those situations, God is actually doing an amazing work. Look at it, uh, the end of verse 3. What we know is that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because it says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's where we left off. So, we're in the middle of Paul saying, Look, the Christian can survive. He can even thrive in crushing trials. Why? Because when you sum it all up, the Christian knows that God loves them. He knows that whatever the circumstances, it can't be that God is mad at me. It just can't. The the Holy Spirit, Paul says, confirms this in verse 5. The Holy Spirit pours that into our hearts. The Holy Spirit says to us over and over again in the midst of these trials, God loves you. I promise you this trial is not to ruin you. It is to refine you. This trial is not to punish you, but to purify you and approve you for still higher purposes that God has. Now, some of you, maybe I'm talking to a wall right now. Because you say, I I wish I really could believe that. I mean, it sounds nice. But I mean, it just sounds like words. It just sounds like, okay, God loves me. Doug, it sounds like the stuff that you are saying is just words like platitudes, like the stuff you see on those office pictures. You know what I'm talking about? Sunset, ocean, boat. One word, tranquility. I want to have one that I get to put the word on. It says, huh? (laughs) I mean, they're just like words, right? I mean... It's nice to look at, but it's just words. Maybe that's how you feel God is toward you, about God's love for you. You're like, I want to believe it, but listen, I need more than words. I need God to show me that He loves me. I would say to you, you have a good point. We say to any husband who's trying to be a good husband, look, don't just say that you love your wife. Show her. Don't just say that you love your kids. Show them, right? I think it's fair. It's, it's an honest request. We really need to have God show us His love. 
What we really need in times of trouble, trial and pressure, those times when we can't even catch our breath, what we really need is for God to show us that he loves us. Can I stop here and ask, if I were to show you, if God were to show you, if he were to demonstrate his love for you today, would you quit feeling sorry for yourself? Would you quit saying, Lord, I think you're mad at me. That the fact that you allow this in my life, you must be mad at me. If he were to convince you by way of demonstration, would you then say, okay, I guess the trial that I'm going through is really for my purification or for that he might use me more. That it might actually be for my good. Would you make that, that switch in your thinking? If he were to demonstrate his love for you, would you then believe that he's not trying to ruin you, but refine you? I hope so, because what we have today is a demonstration. The Lord God wants to demonstrate to you how much he loves you. Verse 8, look at it. It says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, it says, demonstrates. The word means to show, to prove, to establish, to exhibit. Okay? Not just words, but here, I want to show you something. So what Paul's saying is, especially to those who are just hanging on right now, God shows us, when he shows us most completely his love for us, it is, verse 8, at the cross. Today, if you need to be encouraged, strengthened, reminded that your Creator actually loves you, Paul would say, go to the cross. That's where he demonstrated his love most perfectly for you. The title of the message today is God's Love Demonstrated. I got, two, I got an outline for you if you want it. Two parts, and each part has three subparts. Here's the first part. What he did for us, we're going to see what... He did for us to demonstrate His love. And that's got three P's. His love is preemptive. His love is perfectly timed. And His love is a propitiation for perpetrators. Okay? Okay, so maybe four P's. Here's the other one. The the, the last half, and we won't spend a lot of time here. What that means for us, three R's. We're reconciled. He will rescue us. And we will rejoice in God. Okay? You guys ready then? For God to give you a demonstration of His love. Yes? Okay. Um, A demonstration can be a very powerful convincer. Uh, Vacuum cleaner salesmen know this, right? Stole this off the web. I didn't steal it. It's out there. Um, A little old lady answered a knock on the door one day, only to be confronted by a well-dressed young man carrying a vacuum cleaner. Good morning, said the young man. If I could take a couple of minutes of your time, I would like to demonstrate the very latest in high-powered vacuum cleaners. Go away, said the old lady. I haven't got any money. She proceeded to close the door. Quick as a flash, though, the young man wedged his foot in the door and pushed it wide open. He said, don't be too hasty. Not until you have at least seen my demonstration. And with that, he emptied a bucket of ashes onto her carpet, followed by a bucket of cigarette butts, topped off by a bucket of horse manure. And he says, ma'am, if this vacuum cleaner does not remove all traces of this mess from your carpet, madam, I will personally eat the remainder. The old lady stepped back and said, well, I hope you got an appetite. They turned off my electricity this morning. 
So this guy demonstrated something. His stupidity. His pushiness. But demonstration can be a powerful convincer. Right? When you go to the cell phone store, right, they'll have a whole bunch of cell phones out there that you can demonstrate. You can see, okay, this is how this works. How useful it something is. How effective it is. Right? can be much more convincing than just stating something. Paul's first thing that he says in verse 6, this demonstration, I want you to see that God's love is preemptive. Preemptive. Notice uh, the word still. And then notice the, the ideas attached to the word. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for you, first of all, Paul says, he's demonstrated his love is preemptive. There's a lot in the news right now about a possible preemptive strike. Notice that? Uh, Israel, Iran. The, I, the idea with a preemptive strike, implicit in the word, is unprovoked. Right? One nation might know that another nation has nuclear capability and that they intend to use it. They don't wait to get hit. They make a preemptive strike. Now, that might be very, very wise, but technically it's unprovoked, right? Here's what I'm saying. God's love for you is preemptive. Meaning, he makes the first move and it's totally unprovoked. While you, verse 6, were still without strength. While you, verse 8, were still sinners. Unprovoked. You know what that means? That means... That day when you gave your life to Jesus, he didn't look down upon you and go, now oh, that's a keeper. Man, that, that, what a great specimen. I can't wait to have him or her in my kingdom. They're just so awesome that I'm going to save them. No, it says, verse 6, while we were still without strength. It means weak, infirm, feeble. Now, that might be insulting to you, but it's really good news when you think about it. Because over and over again, we see this. He didn't save you because you were good. He didn't save you because you're so good, you're so lovely, you're so valuable. God did not look down on you and go, oh, that person is so lovable. No, it's because God himself is love. Now, some of you have been here for the last few weeks, you know, when over and over again, Romans chapter 1, 18, all the way through 320, it was Paul saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Oh, and did I mention, you're a sinner. Now, as we've gotten into these chapters, Paul keeps beating this drum, which is, you're still a sinner, but God loves you. You know what? Still not worth much, but God loves you. I keep beating this drum because Paul keeps beating this drum. And Paul keeps beating this drum because I think we are so quick to forget. I'll bet you even at la after last week's message that there's nothing you could do to earn God's favor one way or the other. I'll bet you many of you still went back into that habit of thinking, okay, well, I had a good day today. God's going to bless me. He owes it to me. Or thinking, oh man, I really blew it today. God's going to blast me. See, Paul's message over and over again is, 
God chose you when you had no strength, when you had nothing to offer Him but a sin-filled life. So guess what? Today, you still have nothing to offer Him. Right? But He still loves you. The application for some of you this week would be this. Own that. Come to the Lord empty-handed. Say, Lord, I still have nothing to offer you. I come empty-handed as always, Lord, but my hands are raised, empty as they are, saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, love me. He does. Application two, though, if you're looking for something a little more, like, okay, I can do this and, and watch how it works. Application two might be this. What if you yourself performed your own preemptive strike? I don't mean slap your neighbor unprovoked. But what if instead you followed the Lord's example? What if instead, uh, if this week you run into someone especially vile, unworthy, not worthy of your time or your attention? What if you were to just perform a preemptive strike of God's love upon them? Go all agape on them. Unprovoked. So first we learn from God's demonstration that His love is preemptive. But here we go, number two. His love is perfectly timed. Look at verse six. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I think because of our language, we hear in due time, and we think that means when He's good and ready. That's not what it means. It's not like Jesus says, Ah, time to go make the donuts. Go die for humanity. No, in the Greek it means exactly the right time. For when we were still without strength, at exactly the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We could do a whole message on it. I won't just today, but on Jesus' perfect timing. It's throughout the Gospels. Right At exactly the right time in history, He was born. And all throughout His life, He was so aware of time. From the very first miracle in Cana when he turned the water into wine. Do you remember what he said? He said, Mom, it's not time. To the very end of his ministry when he said, Father, the hour has come. Think about all the times when he said, My father is is working, so I must be working while it is day. The hour is coming when no man can work. Think about the fact that he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on the very day that Daniel said he would. At exactly the right time, he died to be the Passover lamb. At exactly the right time, he rose again to fulfill Scripture. See, his love, the manifestation of his love is perfectly timed, always. So you say, well then, why is he late in my crisis? Maybe some of you are thinking that. Why have I been asking him for, seems like forever, and the thing that I'm asking him for seems like he's late. I would say to you, probably you might want to ask Martha or Mary. Because for four days they would totally agree with you. Right? For four days they would have been thinking just like you're thinking. Oh, he was on time for everything else. Why would he let our brother die? Lord, you're late. Well, it turns out Jesus was not interested in rehabilitation. 
for Lazarus, but resurrection. I don't know who I'm speaking to right now, but maybe that's you. You think he's late. Could it be he's not interested in rehabilitation, but resurrection. Something that he can glorify God. If you've prayed and and you're like Martha and Mary, maybe I just need to remind you, his timing is perfect. Okay? His love is preemptive. It's perfectly timed. And number three, his love is a propitiation, a payment, a swap for perpetrators. Perpetrators, perps. No offense, but you. Okay? I wasn't looking at anyone in particular. We've all broken the law. We are, we've all fallen short. We, we covered that very in-depth in the previous chapters. We're all perps. Look at verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for. The word for literally means in the place of. He died in the place of the ungodly. And that word ungodly is not a nice word. It's not, ah, they're sort of bad. This is really bad. He died in the place for, uh, the definition of the word ungodly is the destitute of reverential awe toward God, condemning God, impious. So, really bad people. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for really bad people. Y'all, you know that's good news for bad people. And it's bad news for people who think that they're good. I'll tell you I'm a bad person. And Christ has paid for my sin. He swapped out my unrighteousness for his righteousness so that I can be counted righteous. I don't, again, don't know who I'm speaking to today, but for you to get the same deal that I get, that I got, you can. For, for you to get that deal, you have to admit that you are ungodly, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. When you understand that, when you own it, when you admit that, It's crazy how awesome verses 7 and 8 become because they become literally the demonstration of His love. Let's get a running start. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... And by the way, the word sinners there means devoted to sin. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How many of you were with us during those long weeks? We were talking about the righteous judgment of God, the bus, being thrown under the bus. Okay? Uh, Lots and lots of, of weeks where Paul throws us under this bus. This bus has on the side of it, it says the righteous judgment of God, his wrath. Right? If he doesn't mow us down because of our sin, he's unrighteous. Okay? Because he's a holy God. There, you can't, there's no kind of, oh, well, he's a pretty good guy. No, he's holy and righteous. He has to. Okay? What Paul did in chapters 1, 18, verses 3 through 20, Paul threw us under, each one of us, under the, the bus of God's wrath. Right? Of God's righteous judgment. Paul said over and over again, you've fallen short. You've all fallen short. You, adulterer, you should have tire tracks on your, your shirt. You've fallen short. You, cheater, tire tracks. You, the righteous man, you call yourself righteous, but you're self-righteous. Under the bus, tire tracks. You, atheist, tire tracks. 
Only thing is, only difference is, you don't know what just hit you. Get it? <clears throat> all right. Paul says, look, let's say we're all standing on a corner, okay? And here it comes. We hear it first. Then we see the bus. The righteous wrath of God. And we look out and we see right in the, the center of the street, the bus is going to hit him, a family man. A fairly law-abiding man. Not perfect by any means, but he's a pretty good guy. Paul says, which one of you, as we're all standing around watching, which one of you, if you knew it would cost your own life, would go and push that guy out of the way? If you knew that it would mean your kids becoming orphans. If you knew that it would mean your wife becoming a widow. Which one of you would do that? I mean, you look at him, you're like trying to do the quick math. He seems like a pretty, pretty good guy, but man, that's a tough call. Well, the word scarcely, see verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. The word scarcely means with difficulty. So that's what Paul's saying. It's a tough call. Probably by the time you wrestled with that, do I go and push that guy out of the way, the bus would have mowed him down. You're like, okay, problem solved. <laughs> but then, wait, you hear the bus. It's come back again. It's picking up speed. Now it's really flying. This time you look out in the middle of the street and who's there? Billy Graham. The word good there means distinguished, excellent, at the end of verse 7. Okay? So like a particularly good specimen. Still not perfect, but a particularly good specimen. Paul says, there might be some of you right here, if you were watching that, maybe you might be willing to trade your life for his. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Okay? He says, look, that there are cases of heroics like that. They're pretty rare though, right? They, they pretty much always make the news. Because you see someone willing to lay down his life, his own future, for the future, the life of another. It's going to make news. Okay? Paul says, now that you've thought about that, let me ask you. One third scenario. Same bus stop. Same bus barreling down. This time, in the bullseye, a crack addict. A rapist. A murderer. Which one of you is going to trade your life for his? Which one of you would throw yourself under the bus? More to the point, which one of you, if you had a son or daughter that wanted to go under the bus for that creep, which one of you would allow it? That's what God did for me and for you. We are perpetrators. There's nothing lovely in us, nothing worthy of Him allowing that to happen. Nothing lovely in me worth saving. And yet, verse 8, God demonstrates. He shows. He proves. He exhibits His own that is, His own brand of love that is so foreign to us, His own love toward us, in that while we were still devoted to sin, Christ died for us. 
sinners. Hamartolos, let me just read some of the definitions here. Devoted to sin, a sinner, not free from sin, preeminently sinful, especially wicked, all wicked men, specifically of men stained with certain definite vices or crimes. And then it says tax collectors. I'm just saying. Paul says, look, you, you need a demonstration of God's love for you. When you were especially vile, God, knowing full well what he was doing, allowed that bus of the righteous wrath to barrel down on the holy body of his one and only son instead of you. If you came here this morning and you're an unbeliever, maybe John 3.16 has never really clicked with you before. That's this message. God so loved the world, every single person in this room, that he gave his only begotten son, that which is so valuable to him, that through believing in his son, you might be saved. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, might be saved. He loves you that much, not because you are lovable, but because he is love. Okay, now let me speak to the the believer. Again, maybe this morning you came in and times are tough. You're facing trial, crushing pressure. And you came in trying to believe that he loves you. But you just keep thinking, if I just really knew that he loved me, then I could see this trial I'm going through as training and not as punishment, not as tragedy. I could see this trial that I'm going through, that he's not trying to ruin me, but that he's trying to refine me. I could see that he's not trying to punish me, but he's trying to purify me for good works. I could really believe Romans 8:28 if God would just show me he loved me. God says... What? what more do I need to do? I allowed my son to be punished in your place. It's exactly what I did at the cross. I love you. Please understand. In this world you will have tribulations, but I'm not punishing you. I'm not trying to make your life hard. I'm trying to make you productive, more useful, that you might be even more astounded when you get to heaven. God has demonstrated His great love for us. What He did for us was preemptive. Long before we had anything to offer Him, what He did was perfectly timed. What He did for us was propitiation. That's a switch for a perpetrator, you. So we've seen what he's done for us. Let's close now and we'll go pretty quickly with what it means for us. Okay, Here's what it means. Basically, uh, overarching would be this word reconciliation. You guys say the word reconciled or reconciliation with me. Um, Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified, just as if we'd never sinned, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, again, it's really important to know God is reconciled with you. 
So any, any hardship that comes into your life is not because he's mad at you. He's reconciled. The word reconciled, it's cataloso. Cataloso, excuse me. means to change, exchange as coins for equivalent value. But it also means to reconcile those who are at variance, who are at odds. Interesting. We've been learning, right? The righteousness of God is not a condition that you can achieve, but it's a commodity you must receive, right? Interesting, the word reconcile is also a commodity word, but it's also a relationship word, both a commodity word and a relationship word, right? Because you can reconcile a bank book and you can reconcile a relationship. How do you reconcile a bank book? It all has to zero out. It's easier for some of us than others right now. How do you reconcile a relationship? Guess what? It all has to zero out. When you're talking about a relationship with God who is holy, right, perfect, it has to zero out. In the case of our standing before God, all of our transgressions somehow have to be zeroed out. We have to be reconciled with a perfect God. And that's through the blood of Jesus, through that swap that he's willing to make. Now, some of you, if you think you have a hard time reconciling your books, think about what we've done to God's books. Red ink everywhere. But he's made a way, figured out a way of reconciling us to him. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies of God, interesting, the word enemies there has a passive and an active sense, and neither one of them are good. Uh, The active sense is what you would think, hostile to God. When we were hostile to God, but listen to the passive version of the word, it's odious, stinky. Nasty, not fun to be around. It occurred to me that might be helpful to some because maybe you can't think of a time when you were actually hostile to God. You were just unaware of God. You were, at best, odious, nasty, ignorant, self-consumed, rude. You were like a beggar who hasn't showered in six months, goes into Lloyd's of London and says, what you got in here for me? Okay? That is is it says when we were enemies of God. At very best, we were odious, offensive. Okay, Paul is saying, don't forget, when God saved you, you were odious. But listen, even then, he was willing, Christ was willing to die for you. So the first thing that God's love has demonstrated at the cross does for us is reconciliation. The next thing, verse 10, it assures our rescue. For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved or rescued by His life. Paul says, look, if God loved you enough to allow His Son to take your punishment, then, when you were His enemy, then doesn't it stand to reason that He loves you now when you're His child? Does that make sense? A lot of times we'll look at other people and we'll go, I just want you to know that God loves you. I know your life's a wreck, but I want you to know that God loves you because that's what He does. And then we look at ourselves, and I've been saved for 10, 15 years, whatever it might be. Oh, I don't know if God loves me that way anymore. No, it never changes. If He loved you when you were His enemy, don't you think He loves you now when you're His child? Verse 10 says that His death reconciled you to God. But his life assures your rescue. His death paid for your sin. But what would have happened if he died for your sin and did not rise again? 
Let's say that it was able to pay for your sin. He, he jumped on the bus in front of you, but he never rose again. How miserable would heaven be? We would be the ones up there with God. Oh, you all killed my son. But Jesus was resurrected, right? Instead of just being reconciled by Jesus' death because he lives, we are saved constantly, always, from the wrath of God by his life. Okay? He's alive. And not only that, the Bible says that Jesus is right now interceding for you. Right now. Even though you've been complaining, whatever it might be, he's still whispering in God's ear on your behalf. He's saying about me, Hey, Father, see that? Doug is in the pulpit again. Let your word go forth. Keep him bold. Don't let him say anything stupid. Right? All of this is important, again, because we tend to think, well, yeah, God saved me when I was a wretch, but now that I'm saved, I got it. I'll be good. And then when we fail, we spiral because we don't realize that it's not only has Jesus reconciled us by his death, but he daily rescues us by his life. As a side note, uh, some of these verses are, again, this is just a side note, but this is one of the many places that, that makes me personally pre-trib, pre-tribulation. That because we are justified, we're just as if we never sinned, we won't face the great tribulation. Now, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, you're going to have trouble, right? But that means I expect to, fully expect to, you know, face the wrath of the world, face the, the wrath of my flesh, of the devil, of, of just life in general, but I will not face the great tribulation because the Bible says the great tribulation is God himself, his wrath upon mankind. And he won't punish me because I'm just as if I had never sinned. Verse 10, For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul closes with one more thing that the love of God does for us. He says we can actually rejoice in God. Now, might slip by, but think about how verse 11 used to read for you. It would have been, Tremble, maybe, before God or run from God. Try to ignore God. Fill up the emptiness with anything, everything you possibly can. But now, according to Paul, and I know this to be true, for me, I can rejoice in a holy God. We also rejoice in, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's, we are right with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your mercy. Your goodness. And I swear that you would continue to manifest yourself, Lord, that you would speak uh, to your people whom you love, Lord. Thank you that you know all things. Lord, you know the heart of every person here. You know what they're going through. You know there might even be some who do not know you, Lord. I pray that you would change that today. You glorify yourself, Lord. You'd be a well-pleased, Lord, with all that we do. And we say in Jesus' name, amen.